Ahem. Cow mooing. Yes, yes, I like that. Okay, Sylvan. Uh, Sylvan is our sound engineer. Uh, Sylvan, can I have some barking as well? And uh, maybe some clucking, please. Okay. Yes, yeah, I like that. That sounds good. Uh, wait a minute. We, we don't need the tractor. I think this is supposed to be more idyllic. Okay, good. Uh, now, please stop this music. Thank you. Dear listeners and Shuko, welcome to our little farm. You're really getting into this storytelling, Jeff. So tell me more. What are they farming here? Well, that's, that's because it's very important. And, and they're actually farming all kinds of things that are providing energy to people. And the machines. Okay. So corn and wheat and soy and meat and dairy and, most notably, hydrogen. We're talking about hydrogen gas. Yes, absolutely. Oh, I would say by 2023, we will be ready to implement this technology for farmers. What is, pray tell, this mysterious hydrogen farming technology? And, you know, why is it increasingly important for Bosch? Find out when we're back in our home studios. From know-how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast. Jeff, do you know what quartet cards are? Or go fish or Top trumps? Uh, yes, actually, I, I know one of those. <laughs> I know I know Go Fish, uh, but not the other two. But but anyway, Go Fish is what you do is you challenge the other player, mm-hmm. and if their card has a lower value, you win. Exactly. One popular type of quartet cards features cars. So I thought let's play quartets with our own cars. I'm going to challenge you first. Um, range. How far can your car go without getting fuel? Uh, about 370 miles. I knew you were going to say miles. And in kilometers? Oh, that's rude. What's 370 miles in kilometers? So my car can go roughly 600 kilometers. Okay, so for my car, it's about 500, 550 kilometers. Um, <laughs> I win. I mean, <laughs> the medium range is uh, somewhere around 400 miles or 640 kilometers, by the way. Oh, there's another fun fact for us. I have another one for you. If I was driving a truck, I would have won this round by a lot because they can go much further on one tank of diesel. A typical American semi-truck has a range of more than 2,000 miles or over 3,000 kilometers. I I had no idea it was that far. Mm. But now let me challenge you. How big is your car's gas tank? So my, I actually know this. Um, (sighs) My car's gas tank is 42 liters. Okay, so for my car, it's about 14 gallons. Um, now, for the life of me, I still can't convert <laughs> gallons to liters in my head. Neither so, can I. So, hey, smartphone, um, <laughs> how many liters in 14 gallons? It's 53 liters. Boom. Boom. I win, just for the record. Then again, we're talking about two very different cars. But here's my truck fun fact. 300 gallons or more than 1,000 liters would not be uncommon for a semi-truck. I'm getting the feeling you'd much rather talk about trucks than cars. Which is kind of new for me, right? So, yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's not motorbikes. (laughs) But I want to use cars to make a point. 
Because if we leave our combustion engine cars behind and look at electric vehicles, things change. So I think you remember, and maybe the listeners remember, that, that my family has an electric vehicle. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that the range is about 320 miles. Uh, and it obviously doesn't have a gas tank. <laughs> obviously not. It has a battery, and I've looked it up. Batteries in EVs weigh about 450 kilograms, or 1,000 pounds, give or take. That's much heavier than your, how many liters was it again? 14 gallons? We said it was? 53. 53 liters gas tank. And now we get to trucks. Because when you think about how big their tanks are and what ranges they're typically covering... They would be extremely heavy from all those batteries that they're carrying around. Mm -hmm. And it's not like they get lighter over time, as with a gas tank, where you're you're using up that stored energy so there's there's an efficiency gain over time as well. Mm -hmm. And that's where Michael Marino comes in. Where you need to have a lot of energy density, you need to pack in a lot of energy, then you probably want to have some kind of different chemical energy storage. And that is hydrogen. Hydrogen and fuel cells, I suppose. Spot on. My name is Michael Marino, and I'm working in Bosch fuel cell development. So Michael works on fuel cells, which of course convert hydrogen into electricity that can then power an electric vehicle. In our instance, a truck. Okay, so there's obviously a a whole system that you need for making a truck drive on hydrogen. uh, And that's a lot of different components. But Michael is all about the fuel cell, which is at the heart of the system, right? The fuel cell stack, to be absolutely precise. So when we talk about the fuel cell, well, a fuel cell is only one individual cell going from like 0.5 to 1 volt. But we want to have more power, more energy, more voltage. So we are stacking them and stacking several hundreds of these cells together to get a fuel cell stack. Pretty much like your AA batteries, where you put in two or four into your, I don't know, kitchen scale, uh, or whatever, <laughs> pick, pick your appliance, uh, to get the combined voltage and power. Like that, but with a little more complexity, obviously. <laughs> um, so a battery is easy to understand. A fuel cell stack still has many, many unknowns. I'm working on, well, understanding the stack, basically, because it's a new technology and it's really important to understand everything. And it's just what I love doing. This is what I love about working for Bosch. I find that people are so passionate about the subjects and the projects that they're leading. So, um, you know, I invented for life and Bosch engineers and always looking for new things. I absolutely love the enthusiasm. Especially when Michael started his job about four years ago, there were many, many open questions bouncing around in his head. How can the stack be operated? How do you turn it on? How do you turn it off? What will destroy the stack rapidly? What will destroy it slowly and degrade it slowly over time? How to ensure that we properly evaluate it? What information do we need as the next step for the next generations? It's a brand new component that goes into vehicles. We needed to build up our own test field define how our test stations would work in the end. So we had to make everything from scratch. But Michael bought a lot of experience to the development. Before he started at Bosch, he did his PhD on fuel cell membranes. He can tell you everything about how they work. How do they work? (laughs) I only know these very simple schematic illustrations. You have hydrogen coming in on one side and oxygen or air coming on on the other side. At the anode, the hydrogen splits into ions and electrons. 
Then the hydrogen ions move through the membrane. And on the other side, at the cathode, they react with the oxygen to form water. And they reunite with the electrons who took a way different path, powering a motor in the meantime. <laughs> I do appreciate the kind of audio visualization, um, but that seems a little um, oversimplified. It is, and this is why engineers like Michael will describe it slightly differently. A cell is composed of the bipolar plates. These are responsible for conducting the media, the air, the hydrogen, and the coolant through the cell. And in between those is the MEA, the membrane electrode assembly. It contains the membrane and the electrodes, catalyst layer, and it's assembled. So that's why it's called the membrane electrode assembly. These membrane electrode assemblies are flat. The hydrogen doesn't move through them from left to right, but more from top to bottom. So turn that illustration of a fuel cell that you might remember 90 degrees. Mm -hmm. That gets us closer to what cells look like in Michael's lab. If you want to get really close, we can. You know what? Let's actually dive into the stack and into one cell and see what's going on in there. We are beginning on the scale of, let's say, the meter. So imagine the stack in front of us. Everything is perfectly visible to the naked eye. From the bottom to the top, there are the medias. So it's going in. Usually the media, air, coolant and hydrogen is coming in from the bottom. I have a really nice exercise. Uh, Jeff, you know, like Alice in Wonderland, pick the different type of mushroom. So I'm going to pick the one where we're going to shrink ourselves to a few centimeters. And dive into one of these pipes. Uh, I was thinking more of like a superhero concept, but okay, we'll do mushrooms. God, it's pretty windy. There are thousands of liters of gas going through here every minute. And now it's moving up these pipes, up the stack. And now the first cell comes, then the second cell, the third cell. And a part of that gas flow of the air and the hydrogen now enters to the side. So if we're going to make a right turn here and go into one of these cells... Now, when it goes into the individual cells, we are on a scale of, let's say, about a millimeter or half a millimeter about in size. All right. So more shrinking. Let's get even smaller. <clears throat> right. And now we got to squeeze through these very, very thin channels. Oh. <laughs> okay. And when the gases move along these channels, they are also in contact with the so-called gas diffusion layer. And that allows the gases to diffuse through this gas diffusion layer and get into contact with the catalytic layer. Now we're basically at the anode of our very simple model. This is where things get interesting. And once a hydrogen molecule touches a platinum molecule in our catalytic layer, it will react to protons and electrons. And there's a very interesting lesson here. The hydrogen molecule doesn't simply split like school books make you believe. It needs a platinum molecule to react with. So anyway, sorry, Michael, continue. And now these protons that you've formed, they are not gaseous anymore. Now they are dissolved in the aqueous phase of the ionomer. Uh, I'm sorry, can we, can we get a little deeper into that? The what of the what? Basically, I think Michael is telling us it's starting to get wet. 
Now they can move from the anodic side through the ionomer, through the membrane to the cathodic side. And these protons move through very, very minuscule nanometer-sized water or aqueous domains. Ready for more shrinking? Absolutely. Now we go from the millimeter scale to the nanometer scale. All right, Chico, I'm right behind you. Here I come. We're squeezing through even smaller channels that are filled with water. The water domains are so tiny that only something like 5 to 10 water molecules fit through these channels side by side. Our hydrogen protons are dissolved in this water, so they're floating in there on their way towards the cathode. All right, now if we're thinking about our visualization again, you said we were moving from bottom to top. Mm -hmm. So the water is flowing upwards? I'm very glad you asked. And these water molecules move by two processes. Now we're going into a lot of detail. One is the vehicular diffusion mechanism where your proton just moves with a solvated shell through these aqueous domains. And the other one is a so-called structural diffusion. Some people also know it as the Grotus mechanism, although... In detail, it's a little bit different than Grotus. Yeah, okay. That's all clear now. <laughs> Shuko, all good for you? All good for me. And so <laughs> these protons move through there, <laughs> then reach the cathode side. And once the proton touches another platinum particle, and there's an oxygen molecule around, they react to water. Okay, now aside from Grotus, now that makes sense. We got it. Wait, wait, wait. We made it through the cathode. Mm-hmm. And I would advise you to take a really deep breath now, because we're not done yet. Our hydrogen proton is now part of a water molecule. So, what now? <gasps> You're not going to really last very long like that. <laughs> but we can't have the water in there, because it will flood everything when you don't get it out. <sighs> <laughs> so, you basically got it, Jeff. We go back where we came from. All the way back. And so you produce a water molecule that may go into the ionomer, or it may go into the direction of the gas diffusion layer. Of course, that does happen a lot. This happens because we have both liquid water and gaseous water, so steam. Okay, so with the steam, uh, how hot is it in there? As a human, I would consider it very hot, like... Let's say operating temperatures going from somewhere from 40 to 90 degrees Celsius, just to give a very, very broad value. So up to 200 Fahrenheit. I mean, that's a sauna. Pretty steamy indeed. So our water makes it all the way back to the gas diffusion layer, or GDL in expert lingo. That gas diffusion layer does not want to have water in there because it's extremely hydrophobic. So it goes through the GDL and then once it has left the GDL, it comes back into that bipolar plate channel of one millimeter size. And since we are pushing a lot of gas through it, the water molecule is dragged along with the rest of the gas, exits the other side of the cell, and then it can move down that channel again, the big pipe at the end of the stack down, and then it's gone. That's basically what is going on, in a nutshell. In a nutshell. <laughs> in a nutshell. Wow. So 90% of that is stripped away in the simple illustration that we started with. That's, that's amazing. Indeed. And it shows that fuel cells are actually quite complicated. You need a lot of extremely specialized materials and components that are not used anywhere else which makes the technology expensive, at least as long as it's not being produced in large numbers. Well, 
Mass production is something Bosch is very good at. So mm. hopefully that will change soon. And of course, as demand goes up and the supply goes up, the price is going to go down. And that's how it's supposed to work, right? My favorite word, yain, or to some yain. extent, yes. We'll go, we'll go with to some extent, yes. Um, but you remember what Michael said. The hydrogen reacts with? Platinum. Platinum. And that is an expensive raw material. It is expensive. So fuel cell researchers everywhere are trying to reduce the amount of platinum that they're using. Plus, they're trying to keep it from disappearing. We use it like gold or silver as a noble metal because it does not well, change its properties when it's in contact with air. It does not corrode. But in the fuel cell, it does corrode, of course, because we have a very, very aggressive environment in there. It's sulfonic acid, so pH is extremely low. And maybe it's like zero or minus one. It's probably even negative because there's also these fluorine groups that increase acidity of the sulfonic acid even further. So can we talk about where the acid is coming from? Because I, I feel like we missed this earlier. Or is it even in the expansive description? Uh, Michael left out half of the things that are happening in there. I think I'd go with probably the latter. Oh, okay then, so let's hear it. So it's extremely acidic. Even the platinum will dissolve inside the fuel cell over time. And one of the big challenges right now, uh, many people are working on, is stabilizing that platinum in such a way that it does not dissolve inside that really aggressive environment. As you can see, fuel cells are a technology with a lot of open questions. This is why Michael is so excited for it, because so many things can be explored. It's, it's quite interesting stuff, and a lot of the advanced developments that we have seen have only arrived in the last, let's say, 10 to 20 years, and technological and scientific advancement is extremely rapid. Okay, so uh, by now I'm, I'm still having two questions. Um, the second question I'm going to try and answer myself <laughs> as we walk through it. But Typical the first question Jeff. is, I've, and I feel a little silly asking this, especially because uh, Michael is going so deep into the chemical details. Um, but anyway, the, the byproduct of the fuel cell is water, right? Mm -hmm. All of that comes out uh, of the exhaust is water, that's it. At least that's what we've learned when the, the simplified version is taught to us. Is that still true? And if so, here's the question. Can you drink this water? So, yes, it's still just water and quite a lot of it. For the full stack running at high power, producing 100 to 150 kilowatts, it's about one liter of water per minute, says Michael. Well, it's actually not that different from a combustion engine, but there we... Well, we don't think about that. <laughs> and also, just like combustion engines, it's not liquid but gaseous, so you have steam coming out of the exhaust. To your question, now can you drink it? Seems like Michael was actually curious about that too. Um, we, well, some people may have actually already done that. <laughs> may have. Somewhere. <laughs> Somewhere. Uh, uh, I'm uh, not going into more detail about that. <laughs> of course, we also analyzed the water and it is, you know, you cannot tell the difference from deionized water. So it's very, very pure. <laughs> uh, I mean, personally speaking, who would have not tried that? Especially if you're working on this team, the fuel cell team every day. I mean, come on. Definitely shaking my head. Don't try this at home, kids. Do not try this at home. Yeah, don't, don't do it. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, sir. All clear. Uh, okay, so, so we've covered what comes out 
at the end. And now my second question, really and truly, is about what goes in. So the hydrogen, where is it coming from? We've talked about hydrogen as a sustainable fuel on this show a few times in the past. And now, and, and we said, green hydrogen will be produced by electrolysis. So splitting water using renewable electricity from wind or solar power. But there are other ways too. Green hydrogen can actually come from a farm. And that's our cue for Silvan. So the farmer can take the waste that they produce, whether that be animal manures or residuals from crops, the leftovers of corn processing or soybeans or whatever it may be, and they can put that into our process. This is Steve Wartel. He's a civil engineer who works at a startup in California called CORE, and that's with a K. And CORE has developed this process where organic waste materials get heated up and comes out hydrogen. So if a farmer took their waste and put it into our process... And we're talking about these things. <laughs> we would elevate the temperature of that material to north of 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit in the complete absence of oxygen. And under those conditions, the volatile material in that waste would convert into a gas... The fixed carbon and ash would convert into a solid carbon char, and we would then take those two energy products and use them in ways that make sense with the particular farmer's operation. For our metric listeners, 1,000 Fahrenheit equals to 538 degrees Celsius. And this process is called pyrolysis. And it's really nothing new. You might even use it at home. Some ovens have a pyrolysis setting, and that's where they heat up a lot and for a long time. It's the self-cleaning function, because any food residuals inside will turn into char and gas, except at home, you just don't capture the gases. So the gas that comes out is going to be comprised primarily of hydrogen, methane, carbon monoxide, and carbon dioxide. That's the gas that we would then clean up, and if we wanted to make hydrogen, we would separate the hydrogen out from that gas, if we wanted to make RNG, we would go through a process that reconverts those molecules into just CH4. And RNG means renewable natural gas, so practically methane. Steve speaks in hypotheticals here because the technology is still in development. They have a pilot installation in Los Angeles, which they operate with wood pellets. But he says that come next year, a farmer would be able to get their own hydrogen production going. So we build the entire system in a factory, put it on a truck, drive it out to the farmer's site. You'd have a small crane that would pick it up and set it on some type of a prepared foundation. Then you would connect the gas processing system to that that would sit on its own skid adjacent to the pyrolyzer and pipe it and electrify it and you're off to the races. Off to the races. I love it. Off to, me too. <laughs> so the char that comes out of this pyrolysis, Steve says the farmers should put that on their fields. It holds moisture and it benefits microbes that live in the soil. And most importantly, it will remain there. It doesn't go anywhere. And that means the coarse process is better than carbon neutral. That means that our overall process is carbon negative. To be honest, till today, I've never heard of the term carbon negative. Anyways, 
it is interesting. So it's not only green hydrogen. It's, I don't know, dark dark green hydrogen? Very super green. Very green, super green. Um, and that's because the plants that grow on the field pull carbon out of the atmosphere. Then they'll be harvested and eaten. And the waste goes into the pyrolyzer and then ends up in the soil. At least part of it. The rest of the carbon goes into the biogas, which in part will be used to heat the pyrolyzer. And then, of course, there's the hydrogen. That could be used by the farmer. And maybe they'll have a hydrogen or fuel cell power tractor in the future. Mm -hmm. The farmer could also run a hydrogen gas station. Steve envisions this in the future, where his little hydrogen plants are not only used on farms, but in cities as well, in order to realize a truly decentralized hydrogen production. I really think it's fascinating. The highest cost of the entire hydrogen supply chain is the transport, because hydrogen is such a small molecule. So if you move it as a gaseous product, the entire vehicle weight is only about 11% hydrogen. So you're moving a lot of metal around. So the closer you can have the hydrogen to the point of use, the lower your overall cost is going to be. I absolutely love the systemic approach to this. It's phenomenal. Mm. And ladies and gentlemen, that's how you farm hydrogen. Wow. I'm really amazed. I mean, this is this is why we do these podcasts, right? I mean, we look yes. for wow effects. And this is exactly why I love hosting. And because we <laughs> learn us also on the job. We really do learn on, on the job. And it's kind of, it's, yeah. That picture of trucks driving hydrogen around is the perfect way to circle back to our fuel cell expert, Michael. That's what he is working on. Not trucks delivering hydrogen, but trucks powered by hydrogen. Mm -hmm. Developing a fuel cell stack for trucks is quite challenging, though. Well, the usual lifetime requirements in that long-haul segment are 20 to 30,000 hours of operating time. So going back to our car example, it would be more like 6,000 hours. But how do you make sure that your product works well for, you know, the 20, 30,000 hours that Michael was mentioning? One year has about 8,000 hours. You would need to test for more than two years continuously to get to that lifetime, which is um, tricky when everything is changing constantly around you. Instead of testing for two years, Michael focuses on accelerated stress tests. We said before, the fuel cell doesn't like it when it's too wet, but it's also bad when it's too dry or too hot. So they're cycling between those bad conditions and putting the system through some stress tests. And of course, for reference, you will always need a, as real as possible, a real drive cycle. So let me ask, are there actually fuel cell trucks on the road? As you know, Bosch doesn't build vehicles, but we do partner with manufacturers. And there's currently a fleet of about 70 fuel cell trucks on the road in China that have Bosch technology in them. And we also partner with the Nikola Motor Company that have vehicles on the streets in the U.S., I'm always keeping an eye out for them. I, I would really love to see one on the road. It's going to be difficult to make one out, though. You'd probably be hard-pressed to see a difference. But for sure, you can feel the difference. Uh, test drivers in China say that the trucks are much quieter, for example. Uh, you just hear the noise of the fan that keeps the stack cool. And, I mean, you as an EV driver they accelerate much, much faster. <laughs> Which, I mean, might be one of the biggest plus sides. I'm not sure. <laughs> 
And since we started this episode by talking about the weight of the batteries or, I mean, the fuel and the various reaches of the vehicles, the truck drivers in China use less than 12 kilograms of hydrogen for a 500-kilometer trip. So you can read the whole story with these Chinese truck drivers on, uh, on our website, Bosch.com. And of course, as always, the link is in our show notes. So Michael can't wait for the day when these fuel cell trucks are as common as battery electric cars. He and his team are working hard to get serious productions of fuel cell stacks up and running. It's slated to start later this year at Bosch in Bamberg, Germany. Remember, this stuff is brand new. So there's not even machines that you can just buy to produce stacks. We've got our production people here at Bosch that are looking into the production process and the assembly process of a fuel cell in detail, creating ideas and building machinery for automated production. And everything is ramping up and going on at the same time because we can't <laughs> wait. And at the top of his mind is climate change. That's why he's pushing so hard to move the technology forward, because time is running out on global warming. Yeah, we need to be really, let's say, what's the term? Audacious, brave, because we need to be extremely fast and usual processes going step by step. That's, that's just not possible. Everyone needs to move as fast as possible currently. And well, that's quite exciting, in my opinion. Audacious is a wonderful word, and brave is one of my favorite words. And I think that's really a brilliant quote to end on. It's heartening to see mm. our engineers fight climate change with these technologies that we're inventing. And I believe more than ever that green hydrogen will play an important role in it. So it's crucial that there are also smart engineers on the hydrogen producing side, like the ones at CORE in California, so that the trucks with our fuel cells will actually have enough and cheap hydrogen to put into their tanks. Fuel cells are ready for prime time. And who knows, maybe one day I'll even swap my battery-powered EV <laughs> for a fuel cell-powered one. Speaking of new cars, that will be the topic of our next episode. Cars that do the driving for you. Automated cars. I'm really excited about this one. So I'll see you all next month. Bye. From know-how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast.